Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tarisan Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, world leaders condemn deadly attack on a school in Pakistan and DRC president rejects foreign pressure on electoral process. In economics, Namibian mine pours first gold ahead of schedule and in sports news, first test between South Africa and West Indies gets underway. But first up the news with Anne Musa. Africa Rise and Shine Africa Africa Amuka na Unai Good morning. An attack by the Taliban on a school in Peshawar, Pakistan, has been described by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon as an act of horror with no cause able to justify such brutality. Yesterday, more than 140 people were killed by the Taliban, most of them children. Ban says the hearts of the world go out to the parents and families who lost loved ones. He adds that no grievance can excuse such horror. It is an act of horror and rank cowardice to attack defenseless children while they learn. Schools must be safe and secure learning spaces. Getting an education is every child's right. Going to school should not have to be an act of bravery. The South African government has meanwhile condemned the Taliban attack on the military school in Pakistan. South Africa's international relations spokesperson Clayson Manella has labelled the attack in Peshawar as inhumane and barbaric. He says deliberate attacks against schools constitute a crime against humanity. He's extended condolences to the people of Pakistan and says South Africa will continue to support efforts to address terrorism. All six attackers were shot and killed by Pakistani security forces. Zimbabwe's sacked Vice President Joyce Mujuru will not be allowed to find any other job, nor does President Robert Mugabe's government intend allowing her to resume the parliamentary seat she won in the 2013 elections. Last week, Mugabe sacked Mujuru from a bill she held for 10 years following allegations that she plotted to oust him. He replaced her with a long-time rival, Emerson Mnangagwa. The official Chronicle newspaper reports that the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission was at fault for not organizing a by-election in Majuru's Mount Darwin constitution. Kenya has closed more than 500 non-governmental organizations, saying at least 15 of them have been linked to terrorism. Among the NGOs are orphanages and Christian organizations. The Kenyan government is under pressure after last year's attack on the Westgate Mall, in which 67 people died and several terror-related attacks last month. The non-governmental coordination board says some NGOs are being used for criminal activities. The executive director, Fazul Mohamed, it has come to the attention of the board that some NGOs have been used for criminal activities, including as conduits of terrorism financing in Kenya and in the Horn of Africa. 
In collaboration with security agencies, both locally and internationally, the board has identified these NGOs, their collaborators, sources of funding, and their activities. The board has, with immediate effect, deregistered these organizations, frozen their bank accounts, and forwarded information on them to the relevant government security agencies for appropriate action. And finally, Mali has released the last 13 people being monitored for Ebola from quarantine. The country could be declared free of the virus next month. This is if no further cases are recorded. Mali has recorded six deaths from Ebola, which according to the latest World Health Organization data published on Monday, has killed some 6,841 people in neighboring Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and. Taliban gunmen attacked an army-run school in Pakistan, killing over 140 people, mostly children, in the bloodiest massacre in the South Asian nation. The militia said the carnage was in retaliation to military operations against its fighters in the country's lawless northwest frontier regions. Rana Sen has more. Six militants stormed the school in the northwestern Pakistani city of Peshawar, shooting at students in their classrooms. Scores of children fell to their bullets before soldiers could kill the attackers. The raid was the bloodiest involving children since the 2004 massacre of 186 students in Baselan by Chechen militants. And as countries helplessly watched in India, Nobel laureate and child rights activist Kaila Satharthi offered his own life in exchange for the trapped children in Peshawar. Don't waste one single moment because our children are in crisis, our children are in danger, our children are facing death. Please do whatever possible. I don't know what diplomatically could be done. I don't know what else could be done. But whatever is possible to be done must be done right away, right now. Pakistan is accused by the United States and many other powers of encouraging militancy. And former UN diplomat turned politician Shashi Tharoor said Islamabad was paying a price for dancing with the devil. This is unfortunately what happens when you create a monster. The Frankenstein story is a couple of hundred years old. You create the monster, the monster turns against you, begins to run out of your control. And that has happened to the ISI, we know that. I think presumably there are people in Pakistan, in Islamabad, in Rawalpindi GHQ who who are drawing the appropriate sober lessons from their own mistakes. And as anger grew against Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's government, former Pakistani General Talat Masood tried to deflect criticism from the powerful military. It's not us, it's the Americans. 9-11 happened and then they used our soil and used us as a bastion against these people. So both against communism as well as uh, after 9-11 they used our forces. And now we are experiencing the backlash. The Taliban has enjoyed tacit 
political support. But as ambulances raced carrying the injured, Marvi Memon of Pakistan's ruling PML party said that will now end. Because of this national tragedy, the resolve has in fact increased and the Prime Minister has said it. There is no way that we're pulling back on the operation. In fact, the operation is going to be even more strong against these barbaric animals. This is terrorism. We should share the problem of terrorism. We should call all terrorists barbaric animals who kill our children, your children, our children. The Pakistani army is fighting the Taliban in North Waziristan. But analysts say the military operations, if not too little, have come just a bit too late. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Cameroon says at least 600 suspected Boko Haram fighters have infiltrated its borders through Lake Chad and attacked five villages and two towns. Since the fighting started last week, 25 insurgents have been arrested. Channel Africa's Muki Kinzaga has more from Yaoundé. Cameroon's government spokesperson and Minister of Communication said fierce fighting erupted in Cameroon's Goma, Sangme, Ardebe, Dambore and Swarem when the military attempted to take over the villages the insurgents had occupied for several weeks. Isa Chiruma Bakari said hundreds of suspected Boko Haram fighters penetrated Lake Chad shared by Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad and Niger through Maiduguri in northeastern Nigeria and ransacked, looted and stole livestock. Our defense and security forces vigorously retaliated against this barbarous attack and forced the attackers to retreat. This terrorist organization is only aimed at jeopardizing peace and stability in our country. Chiroma said his country's military arrested 25 of the attackers, killed several, while hundreds of others were swallowed by the Lake Chad waters after their boats capsized or were sunk when they tried to escape. As the fighting was going on in five villages, hundreds of other suspected Boko Haram fighters from Borno State attacked Cameroonian towns of Bankim, Amchide and Limani. Cameroon military spokesperson Colonel Didier Bajek says they seized war weapons and burned 20 vehicles and an armored car belonging to the insurgents. Nos forces tiennent leur position et défendent fermement notre frontière. He says the insurgents are using heavy war weapons, thinking that when they multiply attacks, they will weaken Cameroon's military ability to fight back. Les forces de défense ont défendu fermement notre territoire, le Cameroon. 20 soldiers were rushed to the Marwa Central Hospital in northern Cameroon for treatment while the 25 suspected Boko Haram fighters who were captured were taken to an unknown destination. Cameroon claims none of their soldiers was killed. Isa Chiruma Bakari has called on all Cameroonians to be vigilant and report suspected cases to administrative authorities or their local leaders. This is a requirement of solidarity. This is also and primarily a requirement of national security. Cameroon is resolutely committed in collaboration with its neighboring countries in the fight against terrorism and 
border crime. The violence group has frequently carried out attacks on land over the border. It is the third time Cameroon is reporting that the attackers infiltrated through Lake Chad. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika in Yaoundé. Democratic Republic of Congo President Joseph Kabila has told foreign nations to respect his country's sovereignty after several urged him to comply with the constitution and not to run for re-election. Though Kabila has yet to publicly declare his intentions, Congo is rife with speculation that he is looking for ways to remain in charge of the mineral-rich nation after his second elective five-year term in office ends in 2016. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. All the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo have been waiting for the speech President Joseph Kabila had to deliver on Monday, as this is always done at the end of the year for Congolese to know the country's situation. The head of state looked at different issues including the terrorism people are victim of in Beni in the North Kivu province, the number of the UN mission staffers that should be reduced. He looked at the social situation of Congolese people as well well. Speaking about the upcoming elections and especially the presidential polls that are expected in 2016, President Kabila called on foreign nations to respect this country's sovereignty and emphasized that the DRC won't bow to foreign injections. Joseph Kabila We can wonder how come non-Congolese personalities invite themselves into election-related debates although they might be well-intentioned. As far as our partners are concerned, and if done under respect of our sovereignty, we are always ready to receive advice, guidance and suggestions, but never injunctions. President Joseph Kabila's statement has come after the international community has been putting him under pressure so that he can respect the current constitution that gives him only two terms, the one underway being his last term in office. Some members of parliament from the opposition have said Kabila's speech didn't bring any answer to issues Congolese people are facing, while others believe it was somehow a satisfaction. Senge Bonane is one of the opposition MPs. Specifically about uh, terrorism in Beni area, we are satisfied because we felt the commitment to put an end to the situation. We have learned that member of uh, security services who have been long time in that area have been called to Kinshasa and uh, new others are going. We are happy of this. We have heard that Monisco people should be reduced. It is necessary because there are so many and some of them are accused of participating in disorder, training, giving equipment. I don't confirm, but people say there are planes landing in the national park for giving support. In that framework, we need these forces to be reduced so that we maintain only those who are important. We have heard about elections. It was not clear, but I feel as if there will be no change of constitution. It's a good thing. It was not said, but I feel as if it won't be possible to finish his mandate at the right date. 
this can be it transpires in the speech but that's why he said Congo is not other countries to my view it's a way of understanding about elections we still wait for clear position on how it will be practiced but the fact that the constitution will be maintained is somehow satisfactory this has come a week after president joseph kabila named a new government more than a year after promising to appoint a cabinet of national cohesion that should help to solve the different issues congolese are facing especially in security in the east where at least 260 people have been killed in Beni the last two months by alleged Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces. Jean Noel Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Sudan's Minister of Information, Ahmed Bilal, says President Omar al-Bashir feels vindicated now that the International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor wants to stop her investigation in Darfur. Fatou Ben Souda told the UN Security Council last week that she wants to stop her probe because no one has been brought to justice in a decade and the council has done little or nothing to help. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Leslie Lefkow, the Deputy Director for Human Rights Watch, Africa Division. On the one hand, they accuse the court of targeting uh, African countries. On the other hand, they themselves, some of these leaders are the ones themselves who referred and brought their situations to the ICC. So they seem to have very short memories in some cases. I think, you know, again, I think that this, this is a young institution still, the ICC, and I think we may very well a year from now be seeing a very different picture than the one today, and I think this is part of the, you know, the challenge of, of establishing an institution like this that is aimed at combating the impunity that unfortunately reigns in far too many countries on the continent. And we have to be aware that that is, you know, any institution or individual who tries to battle that kind of impunity is going to face major attacks, counterattacks. Now, Leslie, also, you've just mentioned hypocrisy, and this brings to mind that last week, Yoweri Museveni, the president of Uganda, you know, declared that he will encourage African leaders to quit the court. You know, he described it as a tool to target the continent. But apparently, numerous African leaders pledged support to the ICC at the Assembly of States parties in New York last week. Is this not a contradiction by African leaders who have still increasingly accused the ICC of bias towards them? Well, I think this is where we have to look, you know, at some of these statements with a little bit more fine-tuned analysis because, you know, again, when we talk about African voices, leadership, we're talking about more than 50 individuals, of course, more than 50 states. So it would be quite surprising, I think, if we saw one monolithic voice. You know, there isn't one. I mean, just to give you an example, there was a recent vote on the idea of, you know, bringing to justice the leadership of North Korea, and many people and observers and governments feel that the right place 
for that accountability measure is the ICC for North Korea. And more than 20 African states supported that call. And then, of course, there were some, and you can imagine who some of them were, such as Sudan, such as, I think, Zimbabwe, you know, who rejected accountability and justice in North Korea. So I think, you know, we aren't talking about a single voice. We're talking about different views. um, And some of the loudest critics of the ICC are coming actually from countries' leadership where they have a lot to fear if the spotlight is turned on their own record of abuses. And these decisions by the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, you know, to drop the charges against Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya and now to suspend the probe into the allegations against Omar al-Bashir of Sudan, does it not embolden perpetrators to continue with human rights violations and abuses? Well, I think, you know, the fact is that the prosecutor can re-initiate investigations in either situation, in Darfur or in Kenya, at any time that the evidence demands it. So I think that would-be perpetrators should keep that very much in mind. That was Leslie Lefkow, Deputy Director for Human Rights Watch Africa Division, on the line from Amsterdam, speaking to Jose Khudingake. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Community mobilization is essential to combat the deadly Ebola virus. However, in Guinea, it is very difficult to ask people to change their behavior. That's the view of a spokesperson for the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, who has just returned from a mission to the country where Ebola was first identified a year ago. In September, a mob of villagers in the West African country attacked a community action team and killed nine people after reportedly believing that Ebola was a government conspiracy. The virus has claimed the lives of over 6,000 people in the region, mainly in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. UNICEF's Christophe Bouliarek discussed his trip with to Guinea with UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. I spent two weeks in Guinea and 10 days in the Guinea forest region. And when you are there, when you go to villages, for instance, villages that were uh, closed, who refused to talk to sensitization teams about Ebola, you understand that people really are facing uh, incredible challenges. We asked them to change their cultures within a few months. Let me give you an example. When we asked them, when we managed to, to speak to them, they accept us, and we asked them to change the way they are burying their beloved people who died. It's an incredible challenge for them. When they are burying a a lady, they are plating their hair, usually. This is not possible anymore because we ask them not to touch the dead people. Not being able to plate the hair of your mother, of your sister, is a huge trauma. So my point is that we have to be very aware that community mobilization can be incredibly useful and is essential. It works at the end of the day. But this is not an easy process. It's a very difficult process. Why? It's because we are touching the deep culture of people and we are asking 
to change that. This is, in Guinea, this is even complicated by insecurity. There are really some huge security problems there. You might remember that in September, a sensitization team had, uh, was killed for some reasons, but I could feel, you know, the sense of, of fear when you go sometimes to uh, sensitized village. It is also complicated by the lack of dialogue between people and their authority. I was particularly concerned by the fact that there is definitely in some areas a real mistrust be between people and their authorities. Why does it matter? Well, of course, you know, when, uh, when you give uh, messages on Ebola uh, and when authorities they are also uh, tasked to give these uh, messages, they are not listened, they are not uh, credible. And finally, the fact that after your recent trip to the region, you found that Guinea was lacking in many areas in terms of its infrastructure. What are the auguries going forward for dealing with Ebola and other forms of illness? It doesn't need to be Ebola. First of all, um, when the situation is not w going well in one of the three most affected countries, this is affecting the whole three countries. This is definitely clearly an epidemiological block. So that's something we, we have to keep in mind. Second, I found the response to Ebola given by, by all actors, not only UNICEF, I found it very, very robust, very strong. But I also could note that the challenges in Guinea are probably um, more difficult. There's no national radio. There are fewer NGOs, organizations to put in place the community plans that you need. Yes, there are uh, probably 34,000 villages in Guinea. Uh, there is a, a lot of resistance. As you said, there is no radio that can cover the whole country. It's very uh, difficult to leave Conakry and to go to, to, the, to the northern part of Guinea, for instance. It takes two full days on, on very uh, bumpy roads. And um, again, I think it's a country that has to face daunting challenges. It's the biggest, it's the most populated. And we should not underestimate it, these challenges. There is no peacekeeping mission in Guinea. There, is, there are no military contingents, as in Liberia, who contributed to give a sense of security for you know, new actors coming and, 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 and responding to Ebola. So Guinea is not in this situation, and I think we should uh, give to Guinea enough attention in the fight against Ebola. They are doing incredibly well. I was really impressed by a few people. Uh, I saw that UNICEF and, and others who are working absolutely uh, long hours and no rest for months. I'm convinced that they should also get more support sometimes. That was Christoph Bullyurak of the UN Children's Fund UNICEF speaking to Daniel Johnson. Ahead of the International Day for Migration this Friday, NGOs are strongly condemning manifestations of xenophobia and intolerance towards migrants. The International Organization for Migration, the IOM, says it seeks to promote the need to improve public perceptions of migrants and migration around the world. Last week, Johannesburg hosted the 6th Annual World Social Forum on Migration, which drafted migration declarations calling for social movements and actors to reinforce mobilization to continue the struggle for migrants' rights. For more on this, Komoto Mopulane spoke to Anile Mugisho, spokesperson for the World Social Forum on Migrations. Ahead of the International Day of Migrants across the world, 
we would like to dwell on a number of issues that were discussed during the World Social Forum on Migration and uh, try to push for this to be implemented in, in a certain way because the demands in the declaration were not as many. But yet we still believe that the lack of proper legal frameworks that look at migration as a right, that look at migration as an option, continue to make a number of migrants vulnerable both to the host country and to the countries where they live. As the International Migrants Day happens, we would like to push for the idea that migration is a human right and we would like to push for the freedom of social movements to organize themselves and to receive support from the government. Many of the social movements and civil society organizations working on migration continue to experience severe challenges. There is no means for us to celebrate the International Day for Migration when the migration regimes across the world continue to face severe challenges, continue to face discrimination. Each and every year it's a news of border control being pushed forward as an initiative instead of opening of borders. What would you say really came out of the World Social Forum and um, also maybe then touching on to some of the declaration, a list of the declaration that you had? So the social movement has demanded full commitment from governments, those that are signatories to the UN Convention, those that are signatories to the AU Convention, the Convention of Cartagena and uh, amongst others those that were signed in Uganda so that we can have one body of legal framework that looks at refugees and asylum seekers but also the review of this legal framework because the lack of updates on this policy and the fact that it has not been reviewed for many, many years has rather left a huge loophole in the ways in which states on their own continue to develop mechanisms based on their state sovereignty and powers that curbs migration and that does not allow refugees to access their protection or full protection in the host country. And yet the UN still very silent on the fact that refugees are dying on a daily basis. And states that have signed uh, as signatories to the conventions of refugees continue to violate its own clause without nobody being held accountable. So this is something that we are pushing for in terms of forced migration that has to be done, that government has to turn hand and has to get close to the social movement so that we can have a proper social movement and as well as a legal framework that will protect refugees fully in the countries where they seek asylum. In terms of social cohesion, the migrants are still treated as second-best citizens, and even though they make tremendous contribution to those economies, they are still considered as a weight rather than a help. And so we want, we want integration, cohesion and integration to be looked at as something that look at migrants and migration with humanity. We need full recognition of equal rights, full social, political and economic and cultural integration of migrants in countries where they go to live. And now that these declarations have been set, um, are there any practical, if I may, measures that will be put in place to ensure that there is implementation as far as, as, as the declaration is concerned because many are times there are policies that have been drawn up, there are declarations that have been drawn up, but there, there hardly ever is implementation in that regard. The committee has, is pushing for the declarations to be to reach as far as possible, including to the UN, including to the AU. That was Anile Mugisho, spokesperson at the World Social Forum on Migrations, speaking to Khumuto Mopulani.
Headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has condemned an attack by the Taliban on a school in Peshawar, Pakistan, in which more than 140 people were killed. Kenya has closed more than 500 non-governmental organizations, saying at least 15 of them have been linked to terrorism. And transitional authorities in Burkina Faso have suspended the political party of the ousted president, Blaise Kampere. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's exactly 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A Ugandan maid was jailed for four years for abusing a toddler in a case that shocked the country after a graphic video of the assault was made public. The video footage which prompted the case came from a camera the child's father had installed in his home after noticing his daughter was bruised and limping. He reported the abuse to police last month and circulated the video online to family members. The footage was later shared more widely, provoking horror and upset internationally. Now, our question to you today is, do you think that a fair sentence for such a crime? The, the Ugandan maid was jailed for four years for abusing the toddler. Give us your thoughts, your views. Email us on info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think that four years is a fair sentence for the Ugandan maid who was, who was abusing a toddler? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now let's go back in time to today in 1996 in history. A Ghanaian citizen, Kofi Annan, was appointed as Secretary General of the United Nations to replace the outgoing Butrus Ghali, whose term of office had expired. Let's listen to the former UN Secretary General speech. I am deeply honored and truly touched by the words you have spoken. After 10 wonderful years as Secretary General, it is humbling to be recognized for simply doing what you love to do. Despite many difficulties and some setbacks, in the past decade we have achieved much that I am proud of. In a time of sweeping change and great challenge, the United Nations remolded and reoriented itself. It became more transparent accountable and responsive. It began to better address the needs of individuals worldwide. It faced emerging threats as well as familiar ones head on. And it it internalized the notion, as we've heard this morning, that development, security, and human rights must go hand in hand. 
That was former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan speaking there in the UN General Assembly. Today in history in 1996. Investment in agriculture and rural development is going to be crucial in fighting poverty and feeding a global population that is expected to reach 9 billion in 2050. That's according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. The agency is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the FAO's investment center this year, which is devoted to improving public and private investment in developing and transition countries. To find out more on this, Muriel Saar spoke to Gustavo Merino, director of the FAO's investment center. The investment center leads FAO's support to investment to member countries. We help them invest more and better in agriculture and rural development in all aspects of the investment process, defining investment projects, sector studies, policy issues, developing the projects, design, and so on. And we work mostly on three-way partnerships with financial partners to a large extent, talking about the international development banks like the World Bank or IFAD or other financial institutions, the European Bank for Construction and Development, the regional development banks, the African Development Bank, the American Development Bank, and help them precisely and the countries bringing in FAO's expertise our experience in project design, in project formulation, in making sure that the investment projects result in improve the livelihoods in rural areas, improve the food security, more agricultural productivity in a sustainable manner, and so on. How does it help countries in agriculture and rural development investment strategies? Well, investment is fundamental to ensure economic growth, to ensure improved livelihoods, raise income in rural areas. It's the basics of moving ahead. And given this realization, the way we help is to improve the investment process. That is what we are involved with through our involvement in these projects with bringing, as I said, FAO's knowledge or experience in the investment center to make sure that these projects are successful. This year marks the 50th anniversary of FAO's investment center. What are the main highlights of these periods in terms of programs or projects? Well, it is a long history, 50 years of work. With this regard, it started in 1964 with an initial agreement with the World Bank, between FAO and the World Bank for investment support. And since then, we've worked in over 2,000 projects worldwide in 170 countries, projects that are worth more than $100 billion dollars. The type of work has evolved, the needs evolved, the challenges evolved from time to time, and one of the keys of the reasons why the Investment Center continues is that we are able to adapt to the challenges, to the requirements of countries. Most of the work is in this three-way partnership between the countries and the financial institutions. We also work with non-financial partners. I would mention, for instance, CADEP, the Comprehensive Agricultural Development for Africa Program, and with NEPAD, 
Also, we work, in, for instance, with the financial aspects that are not part of the financial institutions in terms of lending. For instance, the Global Environmental Facility that provides funding for countries for projects that have incremental environmental benefits. And we've been working through in that realm with um, 50 years, adjusting, as I mentioned, to the times and the needs in each case. The investment days, 16 and 17 December. What are the main topics of this event and how are you planning to continue assisting countries in the future? This year, the investment days, we want to make them extra special because it's the 50th anniversary. We want to take the opportunity to use this knowledge sharing event to think about the challenges for agricultural investment in the future and how FAO can be ready and provide investment support to address these challenges. We'll be discussing this with our partners and with TCI and FAO colleagues in general who are interested in this topic. And what we need is to be able to address these challenges well in the future. For instance, population growth is going to be significant. We're going to be 9 billion people in 2050. Food production has increased by about 60%. There's changing demographics. We have to take to creation population aging, urbanization. And of course, there's many, for instance, environmental issues. Climate change has a big impact on agriculture and we must increase production in a sustainable manner and the current tracks may not be the best. We have to change how we produce, increase productivity in a more sustainable manner. But also agriculture contributes to climate change. So we have to do it differently, not just be ready to have the resilience to defend ourselves. A very important starting point, I must say, is the FAO's strategic framework, which provides five very clear objectives in terms of reducing food or eliminating food insecurity, reducing rural poverty, producing sustainable, increasing production, increasing productivity, and ensuring resilience. So these objectives are a, a good framework to work on to address the challenges we face for the future. That was Gustavo Merino, director of the FAO's Investment Center, speaking to Muriel Saar. It's 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Broadband or high-speed internet access has been described by a senior Kenyan government official as the highway to inclusivity and economic development. Fred Matiangi, the Minister of Information, Communication and Technology, is a senior government official who attended a recent meeting of the International Telecommunication Union, IT, in Doha, Qatar. He said all aspects of people's lives are going to be driven by data and the way it is managed. Maximilian Jacobson Gonzalez sat down with Minister Matiangi and first asked him about the developments in technology, policy or business that he sees as key to the future. One, of course, the greatest thing about uh, the future is we're in the era of big data and um, management, governance, business, uh, and virtually all aspects of our lives are going to be driven by data and how we manage data as we move forward. So the development of um, various platforms on which we manage, manipulate, and use big data to organize ourselves is critical and is going to be very critical as we go forward. That's why it is absolutely inconceivable to think about development post-2015 without looking at how the ICTs will play a role in that framework. And what is Kenya's priority in that future? Broadband. 
ensuring that we move and enhance our broadband footprint across the country because that is how we can achieve inclusion, that's how we can achieve participation, and that's how we can afford our people access and ensure that our people come into the global community of communication as it were. So we're working together across the board, private sector players, we in government through policy and legislation to ensure that we enhance the broadband footprint in our country. By broadband do you mean mobile or fixed? Both, because uh, in many countries in Africa, and ours is not an exception, there is necessity at the moment because of various infrastructural development to ensure that we work on enhancing both fixed and mobile broadband. But going into the future, because of the way technology is going, whether we are supporting shared infrastructure frameworks, mobile broadband is going to be faster, cheaper to deploy, and most importantly, of course, highly accessible. So we may have a bias towards mobile broadband, but we are also doing fixed as it were, because we are having several programs right now working towards investing in fixed broadband. And how is Kenya, what steps is Kenya taking in enabling its people to benefit from developments in technology? Investing heavily in infrastructure development, ICT infrastructure development, fast through policy, mainstreaming ICTs and ensuring that ICT is mainstreamed in all our infrastructure development. Through legislation also identifying ICT as a critical infrastructure. We are writing a law in Kenya. We are calling the Critical Infrastructure and Utilities Bill which will make all ICT infrastructure critical and we can protect it as a critical installation or critical aspect of our security and our economic development. And in addition to the government investing resources, we are developing frameworks through which we work with private sector players to ensure that sufficient resources go into building infrastructure across the board so that we can enhance inclusion and enhance access and, of course, affordability by our people. Now, I know there's been talk here of Smart Africa. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that and your involvement in it. We've come together right now, about nine countries in the continent. We are walking from this philosophy. It is very good for each of us as a country individually to develop and enhance our ICT status. But it's better to organize ourselves according to regions across Africa. But it's best to connect the continent so that we are all connected as it were. And that was Fred Matiangi, Kenyan Minister of Information, Communication and Technology, speaking to Jacobson Gonzalez. Economic update with Tabi Solohoku. Nigeria's interbank overnight lending rate spiked further by 20 percentage points to 80% following a drop in liquidity on large Naira cash withdrawal by the state-owned energy company. One dealer says the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation withdrew more cash from the system, hitting hard on some banks which have to resort to borrowing heavily from other banks to cover their position. The cost of borrowing among banks has oscillated between a high of 70% and a low of 14% since last month. Namibia's second gold mine, which is still in the construction phase, has poured its first gold ahead of schedule. The B2 Gold Corporation's president and chief executive officer, Clive Johnson, says the gold had been poured at the Ochikoto gold mine. The first gold in Godhat, rather the first gold, had been supposed to be poured by Monday, but occurred three days earlier. The Ochikoto gold mine is 300 kilometers northeast of Windhoek, near Otavi. 
It is 90% owned by the Canadian mining company B2 Gold Corporation and 10% by EVI Mining. Tanzania is set to import over 250,000 tons of oil products for delivery in February from Geneva-based trader Augusta, nearly 10% more than it bought in a previous tender. The Petroleum Importation Coordinator, which represents oil marketing companies in the East African nation, bought 166,607 tons of 50 ppm sulfur diesel, 71,585 tons of 10 ppm sulfur gasoline, and 15,065 tons of jet fuel, and 1,150 tons of kerosene. Morocco has launched a national plan to boost imports of liquefied natural gas, including the construction of a terminal at the industrial hub of Joflasfa with up to $4.6 billion. The idea to build a LNG terminal was announced a few years ago, but the government has since given no reason for the delay. Morocco, a net energy importer, aims to diversify energy supplies and reduce dependence on oil and coal imports. Russia says it will not cut out oil output to help prop up prices and refrained from calling an OPEC to do so, despite its economy showing signs of severe stress and its currency collapsing to record lows. Oil prices dropped to near $59 per barrel for the first time since 2009. After OPEC member, the United Arab Emirates reinforced the message from key Gulf producer that OPEC would not rush to cut its production to balance the market and alleviate a growing global glut. Oil prices are now down almost by half since June due to weak demand and growing supply from the United States in a development to putting oil-independent or rather oil-dependent economies such as Russia and Venezuela under severe strain. Financial indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance with a gateway into the African continent. We also take you through the international sphere. The US dollar trades at 11.69 South African rands, 954 Botswana Pulas, 634 in Zambia, 062 British pound, 073 across the Eurozone. Gold, $1,197. Platinum, $1,198 an ounce. Brand crude, $59. Uh, five cents a barrel. Channel Africa with the Gateway. Self-confident, on top of the situation, capable of. Picking up improbabilities, contradictions. He was imposing. He was a very tough negotiator. He didn't come up with a, a statement. The negotiations of trying to take revenge, of blame, criticism, bitterness, retribution. What he did was to get into the mind of his adversary. I don't think that 27 years was a waste. It was quite crucial in the making of who he turned out to be. Nelson Mandela, the key to our freedom, reconciliation and unity. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news. Top-ranked South Africa play their first test in five months when they face an unfamiliar West Indies in the opening contest of the three-match series in the country's capital, Pretoria, this morning. It will also be the first outing for the Islanders since they cut short their tour of India in October after a dispute between players and their board. Having last played each other in five in each other having last played each other in five day cricket back in 2010 South Africa coach Russell Domingo did say that some extra homework against the team was needed without experienced Star Wars in Chris Gale Darren Bravo as well as Darren Sammy who retired from test cricket back in May meanwhile test captain Hashim Amla says even with the inexperience in the West Indies side they will have to be on their A game the West Indies team are a good team. Uh, they have a lot of young faces and inexperienced guys, uh, but many teams have come here before in similar situation and provided a very, very you know, formidable challenge. So for us to be on top of our game is going to be extremely important. Amla says it's good to be back playing on home, home soil. It felt like we've been away for quite a long time. Um, during this year, we've had quite a few away series already. So to be at home and to give the fans some home, some, some home cricket and hopefully the home for so- support and hopefully some victories as well. Uh, so it's really nice to be back. On athletics news, Kenya's top marathoner Rita Jipto will know her B-sample result on Friday this week after the star disputed her A-positive result carried out in an out-of-competition in September. The 33-year-old based female marathoner of the year was found to have traces of EPO in her urine test. Channel Africa's Francis Motegi has more details. If found guilty, Jepto may serve a long-term ban from International Athletics Association Federation's event. Some of the local athletes are calling for fellow athletes found to have been involved in doping to face jail terms. Apart from a possible lengthy ban, Jepto also stands loose hurries and titles, which include Boston and Chicago Marathon titles, and an addition to the World Marathon Major Cash Prize of 500,000 United States dollars that could have been approximately 45 million Kenya shillings in her bank had she not gotten into this controversy. In the unlikely event that her B results return negative, the Maradona will have a surmountable task of bouncing back and regaining the trust that so invited her invited to major city marathons for a while. On to local football news, Kazi Chiefs extended their lead at the top of the APSA Premiership to 16 points when they defeated Free State Stars 2-1 at the Peter Mogaba Stadium on Tuesday evening. Goals from Kinston Ngata and Siabonga Ngosi took Chiefs to their 13th league victory in 17 undefeated matches, while Free State Stars remained second last on the log after suffering their ninth defeat. In the other matches of the evening, a brace from Anthony Lafour led Mamloli Sundowns to a 2-1 win over Maritzburg. United at the Heriguala Stadium in Peter Maritzburg. Bulugwana City were hammered 5-1 by the University of Pretoria, while Ajax Cape Town and Amazulu played out to a one-all draw. And finally, action resumes tonight. Orlando Pirates caretaker coach Eric Tinkler says he wants to return the favour by beating Morocco Solos in their own backyard when they meet in the APSA Premiership 
match tonight at the Dobsonville Stadium and the first match of the season for both teams. Swallows claim the bragging rights with a 2-1 away win to Pirates. Even so, Tinkler has acknowledged that Fani Madida's impact to the team has grown and, are not, and it will not be easy to win the original Soweto Derby, but unfortunately, they are on a mission to win. Swallows obviously didn't start the season off very, very well. Uh, we lost to them actually, funny enough, in the, our first league game. And uh, we need to obviously turn that around. Not that we deserve to lose that game. I think we created so many chances, we just couldn't score. And, uh, you know, I think we got hit on the counter-attack. So it's vitally important, obviously, that, that we, we go to Dobsonville and get a positive result, you know. Those are your sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shan at this hour. World leaders condemn deadly attack on a school in Pakistan and DRC president rejects foreign pressure on electoral process. That wraps up Africa, Raz and Shan today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutsura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Andy Brown with the track title Takura.
Welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. In the headlines, UN chief Ban Ki-moon condemns an attack on a Pakistani school. More than 500 non-governmental organizations closed in Kenya. And Burkina Faso's former ruling party has been suspended. A very good morning to you.